And if you look at cycles of innovation and when great innovations were created in, just in history, it's usually in down cycles. So companies that invest in a down market are better equipped to take advantage of when the market ticks back up. They have a new strategy and they can ride that wave and grow even bigger. So I think it's those companies that are willing to take risk and make investments. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The melting pot is a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance. Scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm chatting to Dennis Hahn. Dennis is the Chief Strategy Officer at Liquid Agency. A while ago, I spoke to Marty Newmeyer. And after the podcast episode with Marty, he said I really needed to chat with Dennis because one of the things that Marty talked about was this concept of swarming as a way of helping businesses, the way that Liquid Agency helps businesses pull from its inner memory or pull from its the essence of the business, the solution to a problem that it poses. So rather than sit down with the executive team and ask them what they think and facilitate a workshop, Liquid have created this methodology called swarming that Dennis and I chat about today in hopefully enough specific detail that will give people a chance to go and try this as an alternative. And so they originally started Liquid as a brand agency, but now they're solving challenges with CEOs and chief HR officers and chief marketing officers. That's sort of what he calls is that new power trio to make sure that the brand, the business's brand and the business's culture and the customer experience are, are all perceived and authentically delivered as, as a whole. So fantastic conversation with Dennis. I really enjoyed it. I took away a lot of usable intelligence that I'm going to apply in, in our own business. I'm sure you'll enjoy it as well. Hello, I'm Dennis Hahn. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer of Liquid Agency, uh, located in San Jose, California. And what does Liquid Agency do, Dennis? We are a brand experience agency. Um, we help Companies align brand, culture, and employee experiences to create authentic and meaningful brands. And who have you done that for? Uh, companies like Nordstrom, Walmart, uh, Google, GE, uh, a lot of big brands that you probably have heard of. Um, and also many that you haven't, <laughs> a lot of challenger brands too. Very good. Um, where? What does the agency do now? And and be, and I'm asking you a leading question because we've already had the, we've already been speaking about it a little bit. You know, where where is the agency now, and where where were you? Where did it come from? So, Liquid is 20 years old. Uh, our heritage is really in brand strategy and design, so the classic brand consulting, um, and that's where we've been. Uh, and clearly, the agency has evolved over the last 20 years uh, to solve much bigger and broader. Uh, business and brand challenges that companies have, which involve now workplace culture, employees, and customer experience. So all these things really are all interrelated if you think about it. 
And, and that's where we started connecting the dots and started creating a broader but integrated offering. Because it's just more powerful if if the whole experience is connected as opposed to, you know, maybe he's got an interesting image and, and a great strap line. Right. When we used to do just brand strategy and identity, we would define a brand, what it stands for. We design the brand identity and how it looks and its image. And we package all that up into a kit and give it to the client. But we never really activated it. And there was really no way to uh, connect it to anything else. So it just didn't feel right to us to be stopping there. Well, and also this, that you just leave, there's a whole lot of value left on the table, isn't there? Completely. Well, and particularly if you, if you feel that it's like, and so what have you, what have you done? What's been the journey to get from where you are now from, I mean, 20 years is a long time, but you know, what, what are some of the, the big changes that you've gone through? I think it was the realization that brands are meaning making machines uh, for people. And so people, uh, if you look at cultural anthropologists, they've been studying how people consume brands and they consume brands for their symbolic meaning as much as their function. So people don't just uh, associate with a brand because of what they're going to get from it physically or tangibly, but they also emotionally, how does it relate back to their, who they are as a person and their identity? And once we kind of unlocked that, um, it just opened up a lot of potential for engaging customers in a more meaningful way and also employees who work at the brands themselves. So it, it creates this whole ecosystem around the brand meaning. Well, I, and I guess the, a good example of that is that sort of the um, Pepsi challenge where, you know, you give people that blind Coke and they go, the blind cola and they say, oh, well, I prefer this one. It's Pepsi. Okay, thanks. And off they go and buy cola, uh, buy Coke. Sure. Yeah. I mean, people are hardwired uh, around the meaning that they get in, in the in, these intrinsic qualities they get from the brand itself and the association with it more so than the product, not always, but, but in many cases. And one of the things that I think you've done is you've, you've pioneered a way of working with your, with your clients. Yes. Um, so we call it swarming and swarming is a method that we've developed over time to really co-create with clients. And we call it swarming because we bring in a variety of different clients across the organization. So so to break down the silos, right? So we, we try and bring people across the enterprise at all levels of leadership. And we also bring a variety of agency people together. And swarming is attacking uh, a problem from multiple angles all at once. So it's very rapid, very agile, but it's also structured in a way where we get to uh, a real result. And how is that different? I mean, is, how, is, how different is that from the way you used to do it? And how is that different from, I don't know, running a workshop? Right. So many workshops uh, are about the consultant is talking a lot, presenting slides, case studies, and there's discussion and dialogue. Maybe there's a few post-it notes or some whiteboarding, but, but it's very highly unstructured typically. Um, and the uh, outputs are not always clear. Um, so swarming is really more structured. It's, think of it as structured brainstorming. Uh, so it's really designed to get a lot of ideas out very quickly. So we call that divergent thinking, where we break down groups into smaller units. We, we get lots of different ideas quickly, and then we sort through those, and then we bring them back together, uh, and we do convergent thinking, where we sort through the best ideas, and we synthesize and improve on those ideas. So it's, it's based a lot in design thinking and lean startup principles, primarily. So what, sort of working in threes, twos and threes, coming up with ideas and then bringing them back fours and fives and sixes in terms of the numbers of people? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, it could be that small. Often our groups are a little bigger. Um, typically a dozen is kind of a small swarm. And sometimes we run them as big as, you know, 30 or 40 different people. But I think that the key is in managing the groups and, and the activities that lead you to an outcome. So it's things build on each other. And that's, that's kind of the idea. So. And what you take a whole group of people for a whole day? Actually, multi, multiple days. Uh, it, it depends on what kind of problem we're solving. We've, we've done swarms as, as quick as two hours. Uh, we've done them as long as five days. Uh, I think it really depends on, again, the scope and scale of the challenge. If you're reinventing a business, that's going to take substantially longer than determining what kind of messaging you're going to do for a new product launch. So uh, there's definitely um, a lot of ways around it. And in, in the old days, like three months ago, pre-COVID, uh, we would get together physically and do this. Um, and typical swarm is about two days uh, of time. Today, we're now doing these virtually uh, and we've broken them down into sprints. So the sprints work better online because holding somebody's attention all day uh, in front of a computer and getting them to be productive is very difficult. So we've learned that by breaking it down into, into these little sprints, we do a morning sprint and give people time and then do an afternoon sprint. And then we can do that over the course of many days until we have solved the problem. Yeah. Okay. So could you unpack what you do in the day for me a bit more? Sure. Um, there's, and again, because the swarms are all different, the activities do vary, but I'd say in general, the first thing we do is we do a level setting with all the participants. So it's usually some kind of a readout of what we've learned. Um, it could be, uh, and we call it a perspective document. So it's a perspective on all the research and all the things, all the inputs we've gathered. Uh, we want everybody to have the same information going in uh, and be able to and ask questions and understand what we've built. And we usually are starting to frame out hypotheses for uh, solutions uh, early on, very high level. So that's usually the first day. And then we start to... And so is that so? That, is that a bit like everybody's got that documentation and people are reading it in the room at the same time, asking questions. And so, and so that must feel, for some people, that must feel really slow. It could, but it, it's interesting because they're all interested in hearing what we've learned. And usually because sometimes that could have been many weeks of research. We've talked to a lot of these people individually, but they don't know collectively what we've heard. Uh, so for many of them, it, there's a lot of insights and things that they just didn't know. So for them, it's it can be very valuable. We try not to spend too much time on that. Usually it's about 90 minutes with discussion. We try and keep that pretty tight, but it's, it's a critical step because if everyone doesn't have the same information, then people are coming at it from their own perspective, their own biases. So we're trying to align just the general thinking of the room uh, initially. So that's how we start. Um, and then we run these series of activities and activities are typically 90 minutes to two hours per activity. And they are uh, all about group work. So we try and get the group broken down, like I mentioned earlier, and working in, in teams to start to craft solutions uh, to the in, in each activity, we give people a frame. So we frame what it is they're supposed to be doing. We give them an example. Uh, we don't give them too much prep because we want to throw them in and get their natural instincts and rather than him studying up and learning ahead of time what they should be doing. You know, you would think that would be very difficult, but people, if you if you set the direction right, people gravitate very quickly and they'll move into groups and they'll start collaborating pretty fast. Um, the other thing we've learned is to eliminate those 
people that talk too much and, and kind of can overpower the room, or if you have somebody in a leadership position who tends to dominate and uh, everyone wants to hear what the CEO has to say, uh, we do individual work first where everyone has to write down and self-reflect on the activity. So we give them worksheet, we give them a focus, and they have to write down and think through the problem that they're solving in that moment. And then they all have to share it. So everyone gets a chance to speak. And then we start to integrate into um, a group solution from, you know, whatever, however big that breakout is. And then that's being facilitated in each case. Correct. Yeah. So we have a, a, a liquid guide, we call that. And that guide is working with the team uh, to get there. So then once all the breakouts are done, then we bring all the groups together. Then they present what they've done. And then our master facilitator integrates the work of all the teams uh, into one solution. Okay, fab. And because it's multiple layers of the organization, I guess that makes it, um, it's not the leadership team coming up with it, because I guess that would have been historically what you'd have done is that you might have pulled a senior leadership team together and picked their brains, and then they've got to sell that to the organization. Yeah, it depends on what problem you're solving, to be honest. And, um, you know, we, we run some swarms with completely with executive leadership teams uh, where, where important decision making really has to happen there. So if, so if you're setting corporate values, let's say, for an organization to guide the whole workplace, that really should be developed by leadership. You can get input from the employees, but really it's leadership's job to figure that out. But if you're designing a new um, a subscription service, let's say, for your retail business, uh, you would want a, a broader group of stakeholders, people that, uh, for example, run supply chain, that people in marketing, people that uh, are in uh, innovation, people that you know run store operations, so that you get a wide variety of inputs to solve a challenge like that. Okay. Are there some things where, you know, it just doesn't work? I mean, we talked about the people who like to talk a lot or the, you know, people waiting for the thought of so the CEO. What, what else, what other gotchas have you have you learned to overcome? Yeah, so I think we've, I mean, honestly, we've been doing this for so long. I think we've worked out all those kinks. Uh, so having the the reflective work done that we didn't used to do that. And we found very quickly, oh, sometimes these groups get overpowered. And so having more facilitators involved has been helpful instead of one facilitator. So it's it's been a, a, a series of improvement over the years as we've learned what works and what doesn't work. I would say now uh, we can go into just about any situation solving any problem and we're almost always going to come up with something in the end that that works for that company. I can't think of a case in the last so many years where we've walked out of there and ha had nothing. And how often is the answer that you come up with just not what they thought they were going to get? Almost always. <laughs> Because it's it's based in design thinking. You and I were talking about this earlier, but executives are trained to make decisions very quickly, right? So it's you you move from uh, knowing to doing. So I know something, and now I'm going to do, and I'm going to make a snap decision. We're gonna, we're going to do this, and that's based on your prior experience and all that. But what the magic of swarming is, it inserts this other step called making, and making gives people time and space to explore alternatives to just the doing, right? So what we think we're going to do. The making might unlock something completely new because we have multiple people solving the problem, which we're not used to also doing. We're not used to collaborating in such a fashion inside of organizations because decision making is usually fairly small and independent. 
Now you bring a group of diverse stakeholders together. They start making, they're going to come up, they're bound to come up with new things that no one person could have come up with or thought of. So that leads to different outcomes. And that's where you get to breakthrough thinking. Yeah, because I, I was as you were speaking, I was just thinking of a of an example where it's exactly that you put that that executive has their set of beliefs. They work with a tight group of people who they know their beliefs, and so the challenges always come in the same place. You sit down with another group of people, and all of a sudden, people will say things that you like. I don't know, not necessarily take each other's breath away, but just look at the problem from a totally different perspective that they that they haven't seen before. I, I mean, in, I suppose in a way that's what, uh, you know, the Black Lives Matter and, and some of the other movements that are sweeping, you know, like, you know, people are having conversations with each other now where, you know, they've got these really deeply held beliefs, but they didn't realize other people, you know, have something different or have had a different experience of life. Right. I think uh, we need to ask more questions uh, as, as, as participants in, in this journey. And, and I think that's, again, a blind spot for many executives, not asking enough questions. It's, I know, I've done this, so now let's just go do that. And, um, and, and I think if you frame, so we frame things as questions a lot. Uh, we use a lot of how might we, how might we's or what ifs statements uh, to kind of open up more possibility. And that's really um part of the magic of the process, I guess. Yeah. Look, I was, I was, we had a guest on, uh, last year who said managers never ask questions to which they don't already know the answer. <laughs> and he said, that is, that's the secret is, is to exactly that. Start asking questions to which you're looking for an answer that you don't already have. Yeah. We call it creative tension. So moving into creative tension means moving into a space of not knowing for a period of time. And you have to create that space to get to somewhere new. And, and, and so that's essentially what we're doing is we're opening up a space. Uh, we do assure the teams that we will get to the answer, but just not maybe today. It might be tomorrow or next week. Okay. And so for some people, that must be a real challenge. Sure. We're going in and we don't know where we're going and we don't know how long it's going to take to get there. Busy, busy, busy people. Yeah. But that's what they're also buying into in the beginning. I mean, they are looking for new thinking. Um, so bringing in other models, looking outside of their industry, looking outside of themselves is very important part of this journey. And you bring that through research and also experience, I guess. We do. Um, so again, it's, it's how you frame the opportunity or the problem. And, and so uh, design thinking is all about that. It's like tightly defining a problem, right? And so if you can define the problem that you're actually solving, you're gonna have a much better chance of solving it versus if it's very vague or not really clear or could be multiple problems you're really solving. And then once you know that, looking at other models, who, who else has solved a problem in a similar way in a very different space, in a very different industry, in a different you know, geography or, or something like that. And I think bringing those different models in, uh, to the table really helps people look at it from a different angle. And, and I would guess now, uh, are you doing a lot of work at the minute where people are trying to use this technique with you to go, you know, our business model either doesn't work anymore or, you know, COVID has accelerated a whole load of other changes and therefore, you know, we're going to have to do something radically different sort of. Yeah, that's where we're finding companies right now. Um, so companies that have been impacted by covid have stabilized, you know, they're stabilizing, uh, but they have to figure out what's next. And a lot of their business models are just blowing up, right? Look at travel, hospitality, retail. These are industries that are hugely impacted by what's happened just in the last few months. Um, 
And some of those things were already happening, like around retail, but other things were and just were accelerated and other things are new, like around travel and hospitality. So these are companies um, and restaurants and all these other industries. So these are companies that ha- have to do something and they have to do something quickly and they have to do something pretty big. These aren't just incremental changes. These are, in some cases, uh, decisions that will ensure their survival or not for the for the foreseeable future. Is there anything you can share that, you know, uh, not name names if you can, but if you can't, are there uh, some just sensational things you've been involved in recently? Well, I'll be honest, it's still pretty early. So we've been definitely been in uh, conversations and we are already working with some companies on some of these challenges. Um, And to help them, you know, we have built this new offering called Pivot to What's Next, which really is a series of one week sprints where we can engage teams to solve some of their biggest challenges and, 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 and quickly. And I think that there's, there's a impetus to do it now, you know, to help figure out what are we going to be doing? Where should we be going? Uh, what are the opportunities? Um, and what's interesting is, and it's not all problem solving. In some cases, companies have unlocked new opportunity by this as well. So they're also looking at how can we seize this opportunity to move our business forward. So it's, it's a very diverse group of companies, challenges, and offerings. But the swarming method helps provide structure to it and helps companies get their, helps us and them get our heads around very diverse set of problems very quickly. And I guess helps, you know, normally these challenges would be solved at, at, a, at the top level and then sold down and it, and it helps that sell through because you're pulling in a, all the way through the organization. You really do need a lot of different kinds of thinkers in, in to solve these challenges. And again, the executive team isn't always the best group alone to solve it. Sometimes it is, but sometimes you need to include others across the, or, the enterprise to, to be involved. And, and that can challenge your executive teams, you know, they're because they're not always engaging. <laughs> they used to they used to be having the guys with the answers. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not used to looking outside of them, their group uh, for potential solutions. But I think a lot of CEOs and a lot of uh, executives are open to that, uh, especially right now. I, I think they're looking for good ideas are kind of anywhere. And so where can they get those ideas and shape those ideas into something tangible that they can do? And so are you now also outside your comfort zone as a firm? Because you said earlier, you know, you haven't failed to solve a problem for people, right? And here you are saying, pivot to what's next. You know, we're, we're hoping the answer to the question lies within your business. Here we go. Let's have a go. It, it is, you know, it does push us as well, but it's, it's one of our, we call it ways of working is it's, uh, you know, we embody a pioneering spirit to solve complex challenges. So coming from Silicon Valley for 20 years, we've seen a whole lot of going into the unknown, right? You don't really know what you're going to, you know, get into, but uh, I think it's figuring out how you're going to solve a challenge or a problem. And, and we rely on that. And if we rely on how we do it, we know we can get there. Uh, the collective brain power of the group, we feel confident we're going to be able to tackle just about any kind of challenge. And if, if you look back, is, are there any um, ideas that you remember fondly being involved, you know, birthing? You know, I think it's it's a good question. And we've there's been so many, but I think um, it's really helping companies get around seemingly impossible challenges. Um, for example, you know, in retail, Amazon is just crushing the retail space, as, you, as everyone knows, and helping companies 
survive against a force like that has is, is been challenging. And, and so it's really looking at what does a company have that Amazon in this case doesn't have, you know, in this case, it's brick and mortar. They just don't have a lot of physical touch points with customers. And that's, and they're even realizing that's what's required in today's world. And so if we can understand what a company's assets and equities are and things that, that are ownable by that company that uh, say Amazon in this case doesn't have, then we're going to double down on that. We're going to lean into their customer base or we call it their tribe because a lot of these customers want these companies to win. It's just the companies don't know how to deliver value to them in ways that they're kind of expecting. So we can help companies unlock that value. And in the process of creating something strong, we can also deposition us an opportunity like Amazon to make it less attractive. Walmart would be, I don't know if you've worked, whether you were part of that, but that, you know, their, their click and collect thing as, as a result of the pandemic has been a great example of that, isn't it? That sort of, you know, leveraging their stores, even into a new customer base. Absolutely. Um, I, and I think companies like Walmart or, or like Starbucks, you know, are paying attention to the market and they're moving very quickly. Um, and that's the opportunity thing I was talking about earlier. So these aren't problems necessarily, but they're opportunities to better serve customers, to, to move business forward. Um, Starbucks just recently announced that they're going, they're shuttering a lot of regular brick and mortar stores where people dine in, uh, in favor of having more to go spaces. And, and that's accelerating their strategy to have more of a to go model, which really was not what the company was founded on. It was really founded on this idea of creating what they call the third place to bring people into a space. But now people want to have their third place anywhere. And so they can engage Starbucks. And, and what's brilliant about what Starbucks have done is they diversified their, their model, right? They, they, when they offered mobile ordering and the app and all this stuff, um, they have multiple ways to engage a customer. And so they weren't 100% reliant on dining. And if they were, their business would be really struggling. Uh, so they really made some smart decisions. And now they're kind of doubling down on that whole mobile idea. And especially in densely populated urban spaces where they know they're not going to get a lot of customers to come into cafes any longer, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. So mobile, mobile order and pickup and things like that are very smart and shrewd moves uh, for a company like Starbucks, who needs to stay relevant and continue to scale and grow during these unprecedented times. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I was talking to uh, Mike McCallowitz last night and he was saying where he is, maybe 20 restaurants in a in a strip and most of them just closed up and did nothing one of them set up a cookery school and is now doing better out of being a cookery school than they were being out of being a restaurant and so it's that it, there's a mindset is, is it a mindset around looking for opportunity i think it is and i think it's also trying to look ahead of the curve uh, i think a lot of companies aren't always forward looking. They're just in the now, right? It, running their business, their cash cow, their, their sort of business as usual. And companies aren't looking down the road. They're not investing in the future, seeing what could happen. Nobody could have predicted the pandemic, but the way it, that it shaped up so quickly. But I think companies can plan for the future. All companies can be doing that. And companies that invest in that kind of thinking and in that kind of diversification are those that are better equipped to move quickly and adjust when things happen. And I think we've seen examples of that. Like in the in Walmart example you mentioned or Starbucks or others, 
these are companies that can respond because they're in a position to do so versus these restaurants you mentioned who hadn't thought of it. There is too late for them. What are they going to do? It's very difficult. Well, I was, uh, I was talking to a client this morning, um, a digital agency, and he said, we were talking about one of his competitors. And whenever, when the UK went into lockdown and the government offered you the 80% salary for furlough, the competitor basically furloughed everybody, including the sales team. Um, Tom didn't furlough his sales team. And, you know, they've been continuing to win business over the last three months, whereas the competitor has done nothing and is going to try and spin back up from a standing start now. And that's there's, there's six there's six months worth of runway there that he, he's got on his competitor. And it's just another mindset thing. Yeah. And if you look at cycles of innovation and when great innovations were created in, just in history, it's usually in down cycles. So companies that invest in a down market are better equipped to take advantage of when the market ticks back up, they have a new strategy and they can ride that wave and grow even bigger. So I think it's those companies that are willing to take risk and make investments are those that tend to to do better. And so do you have a, if you had a magic wand and you were thinking, you know, how do you plant this idea into the brains of CEOs? What do you think, how regularly should people be looking at innovation? Because obviously, you know, the hope is that people do pivot to what's next now and they survive, but how often should there be this sort of deep thinking about what's next? It's a great question. Um, I, I believe that companies should continually have a culture of innovation. They should continually be addressing it in even in small ways. It doesn't have to be massive, you know, business transformation all the time. It can be smaller pivots, smaller changes uh, in better serving customers, better product offerings, you know, things like that. This, but I think if you can institutionalize that kind of thinking inside of an organization, then it's just a muscle memory that's now built and developed. So you're, you're not having to do it uh, interstitially, you know, cause it's very, like you said, you know, spinning up that jet engine, you know, it's hard to kind of spin it up from scratch uh, every time. So sort of maybe, well, there's, cause there's all that sort of uh, organizational death, isn't there? There's, uh, there's the bureaucracy, there's the things we do that people don't understand. They, they probably made sense at some point, but now don't. And if you're going to go all the way through the organization in your swarm, you're going to try and you're going to pull that from every level. What is all the stuff that we do that impacts us as employees or impacts us as delivering service to customers, impacts on customers? How do we turn it on its head and make it go away, come up with a better way to do it. Absolutely. You know, organizations do know a lot inside of a company. There's a lot of expertise inside that company. They know their business very well often, but a lot of the dots don't get connected because of organizational silos. And so if you can bring, break down those silos, get those people interacting in new ways, that's where you get the unlock and that's where you get to innovative new thinking. Sometimes companies can do linear innovation to like, you know, if, if BAU, you know, we've got our core business, you know, we can do some linear thinking, we can make it better, but that sort of exponential thing that that's that radical shift often requires some organizational change. You know, like often it, you've got to take some different people, put them in a different office, free them from the constraints. And, and do you have ways of helping clients do that? Cause you were saying you, you know, you, you now get to do part of the execution with the clients. Yes. It's really trying not to work within your departmental silo, I think is really important. So in the old days, we used to work with just the marketing department. 
but they could only do so much on their own. And then, cause they're reliant on the rest of the organization to really do anything of size and scale. And then if you're trying to affect corporate strategy, you got to get to the C-suite. So if you're isolated yourself like that, you, all you do is come up with ideas amongst a small group and then try and sell those ideas through. If you can break that down and involve those stakeholders across the enterprise, now you're getting them to contribute to the thinking and the problem solving and it now becomes an organizational issue, not just a departmental one. So that's what we've seen as having the greatest success. And when we've done that, you know, we have clients that walk away and go, wow, we've never had these people together in the same space solving a problem together. It kind of blows their minds, which you would think is common sense, but organizations typically just don't work like that. Well, I, I, I worked with a, a global telco a couple of years ago and I pulled together their sales and marketing teams across Europe, and that was the first time they'd ever been they'd ever been together. Which I, which you know, stop being surprised about what surprises you. What what tools do you use? You know, you've said you've gone virtual. What's what are your what's your sort of uh, virtual toolkit? What what apps are you using, or what? Right, it's a great question. Uh, we've been experimenting, and now we've settled on a combination of using Zoom and uh, a platform called Miro. And Miro is the collaboration platform. So it's basically a workspace with an infinite canvas and you can, um, you can design it however you want, but essentially you can invite participants in. Um, you can we set up templates and workspaces that, that where they do the activities uh, pre-designed and then uh, you can put digital post-it notes and people can literally co-create together in that space. So that's, that's a great platform for that. And Zoom is great just because it's easy, it works. You can do virtual breakout rooms very quickly. Uh, there's polling. There's a lot of features that Zoom has that most everyday users don't use. So we've been, I think the combination of the two makes it feel pretty uh, seamless. Uh, and we've had, been having really good success uh, bringing those two tools together. Yeah, I like you, I'm using Zoom. I'm using Mural, not Miro, but very, very similar in terms of the user experience and, and what we get managed to get out of it. Fantastic. Dennis, are you now selling to the CEO then, whereas before you were selling to the CMO? Is that also a big change? Both and. So we, yes, this is still the CMO, but it's still, we, what we also do engage the CEO and also the CHRO, the Chief Human Resources Officer. And we feel like those three uh, in the organization, we call it the new power trio. And they're the, they're the ones that can affect brand culture and customer engagement. And, and so they have the purview of that. Uh, and if you don't have the CEO on board with cultural initiatives, then they're not going anywhere. So we really have found that leaning into the CEO is important for a certain number of initiatives around innovation, affecting corporate strategy or workplace culture at the highest level. But you also need the CMO and the CHRO in there as well to drive it down. So we find that that's really the kind of the nucleus Fab, I want to ask you to stare into your crystal ball. So, you know, we were talking earlier about Silicon Valley still not in the office, different across the world. Seems like people are definitely back in their offices in New Zealand. Everything's back to normal. Australia a bit, the UK a bit more. U US, although you've opened up more than we have, it seems that people are back in their offices way less. What What do you think, you know, you look look forward, what of the changes that we've inflicted upon ourselves in the last sort of three months or so, which ones stick and which ones go back to normal? 
You know, it's funny you mentioned the the workplace issue, and we live in such a binary culture now. It's it's either this or that. It's black or it's white. It's left or it's right. It's 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 very extreme. But um, and right now everyone's predicting the death of the office, and you know, no one's going to ever go back to work, and everyone's going to work from home. And 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 of course we know that's not true. But I don't think it's going to go back to the way it was either. We think I think there's going to be a bit of a mixed. It's hybrid, right? So I think we're going to see even us at Liquid. You know, we're going to be um, still going into the office, but for a very different purpose. We're going to go to collaborate when we need face-to-face collaboration. Uh, we're rethinking our studios to be more multimodal than they were before. It was just a place where people came together. Now we're going to have a physical, like camera, studio, lighting, ability to broadcast as well as host in person. So we're going to see some. Th- some old school swarms where we come together in person, we're going to see some where we're doing them virtually or some where we do both, where we have some virtu- uh, physical participants, some virtual. And uh, and I think companies are also moving in that direction as well. Well, I, I mean, I, I've picked up clients in Vietnam, LA and Madrid in the last 12 weeks. And before when everything was physical, that would have been impossible. You know, that's a a great point you're bringing up because we have been bound by physical geography. In the United States, there's very provincial markets. Like, let's take New York, for example. If you're going to be an agency, creative agency working in New York with New York clients, they only want to work with New York agencies. They very rarely want to go outside of their their region. And there's a lot of regions like that. And now you're right. Those now it's work from anywhere. Right. And I think people. And so I think there will be some behaviors from companies that will be more open to working with firms anywhere in the world that makes sense to them. Yeah, no, very good. Um, So, uh, Dennis, what is it that you know now that maybe you look back and go, I wish I'd known that then? (laughs) If I'd known then what I know now, I probably wouldn't be working because I would have made a lot of money, a lot more money. (laughs) Uh, No, but... You know, I think it's this, I, you know, and this is I clearly timely, but it's this idea, like we've been slow to embrace collaborating online. We thought, oh, that's just not, you don't do it like that. It's much better in person, you know, and we've had these biases ourselves about how to work with our clients. And, and I think now we've been forced into thinking about it very differently. And you know what? It's actually working in some cases better than face-to-face. There are some advantages, some disadvantages, but I think I think we would have uh, embraced online collaboration with clients much sooner and we would have been ready for this. Uh, instead, we had to react like everyone else reacting and throw it together quickly to keep business going. But in essence, uh, I think we've come out much better for it and much stronger. And I think that's taking our own medicine, right? It's sort of like we're telling clients to think into the future. We we need to be doing that a bit. We, te- we think we do it, but I think uh, this pandemic is really... F- challenge that and expose that maybe we're not doing as much as we should be. Yeah. I like the idea of the multimodal studio. That's nice. And, and somebody said to me the other day, they're thinking about their office almost to be a replacement for Starbucks third space. You know, you don't need to come to the office, but we've made the office environment so compelling that you would want to come in. And so that then starts to become like a different bar uh, to set themselves. Dennis, along the way, in your career, you must have uh, read a number of great books. What Are there any that stand out that you think other people should pick up? There's a lot of really great books. Uh, I think if you want to learn about swarming and you're curious about that, um, Marty Neumeyer, who you've interviewed, 
uh, has written a book called Scramble. And uh, Scramble is uh, kind of a business thriller, he calls it. So essentially, it's a business book, but it, it, written as a novel with characters and a plot. And, and it, it's, it's, it's a fun read, but it really brings to life the concept and the principle of swarming. Uh, because uh, there's a business that's going to go under, essentially. And so the CEO calls his agency in and his, his, his stakeholders in across the business, and they basically swarm out some solutions for the survival of the company. And so that's that's fun. But uh, there's another book that uh, I've been reading called Fusion by Denise Yon. And what I like about it is it's something that I believe in about bringing brand and culture together. And I can quibble over how she... You know, there's some differences about how I define it, how she defines it, but essentially the principles are right. And it's this idea that uh, if brand is a meaning-making machine, uh, as I discussed earlier, then culture is a big part of that. And enculturating that meaning with people is critical. And I think this is the next frontier that companies, uh, I think, need to understand to have more durable and authentic brands. I, I find it, I, I heard her speak in uh, in LA last year and and I, I'm often struck when I'm working with clients and where, and I'll say, do you have, you know, core values in your business? And some of them do and some of them don't, but some of them even say, well, we don't, but we do have marketing values. And, <laughs> yeah. and so they've got this, they've done this piece of work over here in marketing, or in fact, they've got marketing, they've got what they call brand values, and then they've got core values and they're different. Yeah. Yeah. And you're just like, well, how did, how did that happen? You know, how could, how could the internal view of your business be different to the external view? That makes no sense to me. Yes. And that, I think, is an area we've really been pushing on with companies and challenging, uh, you know, especially executive teams on their values, because you're right. I, I think you can't have different sets of values. Uh, and often a lot of the company's values that exist aren't even values. There are ways of working or their behaviors. So we, we've been trying to parse those out so that the values are core to the business. They're embedded in the brand. They're all the same. And then there are ways of working which start to guide how they want employees to behave and show up in support of the brands they want to be. So we've created some new tools to help companies deal with these uh, limitations. Okay. And well, in her, in her book, as you say, she, she says that if you put those two things together, then they build upon one another. And, and the, the sum of the parts is big. The whole is bigger than the sum of the parts. That's where we agree. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. Dennis, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much indeed for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks very much, Dom, for having me. And um, great to learn more about you and what you're doing. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. Share your questions and comments and, and perhaps even recommend a guest a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.